0: My name is Lou Walton, and I'm speaking to you from the beautiful broadcast studios of Secrets Unsealed, Pastor Bohr's ministry out here in Central California. I want to say how much I appreciate his messages on 3ABN, very much appreciate them. Pastor Bohr and I have a common heritage. My granddad was Danish and actually one of the first to start translating the spirit of prophecy. into into the Danish language. So many thanks to Pastor Bohr and Secrets Unsealed for the use of their beautiful facilities. My topic is Revelation 14 and the three angels' messages. And to go there, let's set the stage and put those messages in a real-world context. I'm reading from Maranatha, page 138. Anarchy is seeking to sweep away all law. The spirit of unrest, of riot and bloodshed, are tending to involve the whole world. Maranatha 138. In a single word laden with images of societal breakdown, Ellen White describes a world in which events are decided by angry people in which terms like constitutional rights are swept away and one can't rely on safety, even perhaps in a quiet suburb. The word is anarchy, and she uses it again in Volume 9 of Testimonies for the Church. The spirit of anarchy is permeating all nations in the outbreaks that from time to time excite the horror of the world are but indications of the pent-up fires of passion and lawlessness that having once escaped control will fill the earth with woe and desolation. Now reflect on the word anarchy for more than five seconds and you realize that's what we're beginning to see. Think about it. A pandemic brings our economy to a tire smoking halt, strange new habits show up, masked faces and gloomy news reports and empty churches while, ironically, liquor stores stay open for business. A statue of Jesus is decapitated while cities burn, and perhaps the saddest of all, Precious black children just beginning life are lost to gunfire. And meanwhile, we're told we must rethink everything we believed about America. Now, as you reflect on that strange new world, think about Daniel 12. What did Daniel foresee? And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which standeth for the children of thy people. And there will be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. Now let's compare that with events outside America. An isolated hermit nation builds intercontinental missiles and then works to miniaturize it's nuclear weapons to fit the ablative re-entry nose cones of those delivery devices. Elsewhere, winds of terrorism remind us that life is not secure anywhere. And that's the world we find ourselves in today and we watch as governments that once could fight and win a two-ocean war seem incapable of anything Except political speeches. That's the world prophecy says we can expect to see at the end of time. And that's the world we have been commissioned to warn. All right, let's talk about who we are, and why we are, and what our mission is. I don't have any fancy illustrations now, no PowerPoints, no high-tech stuff. All I've got is just my Bible. So let's open the Word. Open the Word, if you will, to Revelation chapter 14. We'll begin with verse 6. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to them that dwell on the earth. Revelation 14, 6 through 12, is the Advent message. It's a profile of God's final end-time church. It identifies a generation of people. How? By describing their behavior. It outlines the messages they are commissioned to proclaim, and it begins with an angel shouting from mid-heaven. And then step by step, those messages portray a word picture of God's real end-time saints, those who keep the commandments, all ten of them, including the one that identifies God as the Creator and recognizes the day He established to remind us how life began. Think about it. Might it be important for an end-time world... To know that, to be reminded of that memorial of creation, when most people are convinced we're here by accident. Well, there's eight mighty verses in Revelation 14, 6 through 12. They build one upon the other like a stairway leading somewhere. Now let's go back and look at that series of messages Describe why we're here and what we have to say. And we go back to Revelation 14, 6. And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. Now, those eight verses in Revelation 14 identify what God's end time church will proclaim. But where do they begin? Well, they begin with the gospel. See, the heart and soul of the Advent message is Jesus. Now, we forget that. If we forget to preach that starting point, then everything else we have to say has little meaning. Everything from Revelation 14, 7 on is predicated on the foundation of the gospel. And if we preach the Advent message without starting there, without keeping Jesus at the center of our whole system of belief, then what we have to say is only words. They're powerful words. With those words, you can make biblically literate, prophetically aware, probably more healthy sinners. (laughs) So heaven's final end time messages begin where they have to begin. They begin with the gospel. Now, we could at this point piously nod at each other, satisfied that we had said an essential truth. But might we have omitted something important? Maybe we forgot to define our term. What is the gospel? It's not an irrelevant question. Buckets of ink have been spent on periodicals and books trying to answer that question much of that has only complicated what should be obvious it's a question that deserves a little bit of research and my recommendation is when you have a question like that you want answered don't go to a commentary or a commentator go to the word and I also suggest if you're going to do biblical research a mighty good place to begin is Calvary Because the chances are quite good you'll find the answer there. Now, what happened at Calvary? Here is this thief, a condemned thief. He's a condemned felon. He's thrown down. His lacerated back is thrown down on that splintery upright stipes beam of the cross. And his arms are yanked out sideways against the horizontal patibulum. And a callous knee comes down on his wrist. And somebody produces a spike that's about a quarter inch square and maybe six inches long. And the hammer starts to ring and then the pain begins. See, when the head of that spike comes down on the tissue of the hand, chances are it compresses the sensory motor median nerve. And that hurts. You've had a little hint of that if you've ever bumped your elbow on the corner of a desk. But this time, the nerve stays compressed. The pain doesn't quit. It's just electric jolts going up both arms. And at that point, the crucified victim typically just began to scream and curse. And this man did that for a while. Cursed everything and everybody. At this point, he had nothing to lose. Society had done its worst. And so they'd curse everything in sight. Even the emperor. He couldn't hurt them any worse than he had. For a while, this man does that, even curses Jesus next to him, and then he takes a look at the fellow victim. And he recognizes, coming from the lips, that Hebrew prayer. Baruch atah Adonai Halem, Blessed Father, King of the Universe. Forgive. And something clicks in that thief's mind. Don't know exactly what it was. Maybe a Torah excerpt he had heard in synagogue. Maybe if his family was enough, lucky enough, wealthy enough to own a little uh, segment of a scroll. Maybe something Mamila read to him one night. But he recognizes in that victim next to him Mashiach. He's looking at Israel's ancient dream and then he does three things worth thinking about number one he confesses his own unworthiness confesses that he's getting exactly what he deserves confesses he doesn't deserve salvation number two he confesses the righteousness of Christ and number three Having admitted he doesn't deserve salvation, what does he do? He asks for it anyway and gets it direct from the king himself. Now that, I submit, is the gospel. It's just that simple. We can complicate it with polysyllabic theological terms, but... It's just that simple. You can preach that in Wall Street or Cannibal Valley, New Guinea. It's relevant anywhere and equally applicable. So Revelation 14 starts with this, starts with the gospel, but notice something, it doesn't end there. In A.D. 1517, when Martin Luther was nailing his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, What he was presenting to the public was present truth. That's what was needed above all else. The Christian faith had lost sight of the simplicity and elegance of the gospel. Only Bible, only Jesus, only faith. And the church needed a course correction. That was present truth in 1517. But in the world of Revelation 14 and Matthew 24 and Luke 21 and Daniel 12, a world in which cities are on fire and disease shuts down the economy and raging voices urge us to rethink even the foundations of America. People need to know more. They need to understand the spiritual nature of end time issues because end-time issues will involve spirituality. So now we move on to the second great truth God's end-time people are commissioned to proclaim. Let's go back now to Revelation 14, 6. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel and saying with a loud voice, Fear God. And give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. In a single sentence, separated only by commas, Revelation 14, 6 and 7 moves from gospel to judgment. And it doesn't say the judgment will come. Not doesn't say it will come conveniently a thousand years in some nebulous future. It says it's here present, underway. God's end-time people deliver a judgment hour message. The first understanding of which they began to get on the morning of October 23, 1844. That message is absolutely unique. You won't find it anywhere else in Christian theology. No other church... Preaches or believes it, but it explains something that is otherwise unexplainable because it does so on heaven's terms. Let me explain. Here is the problem sin is a frighteningly tough virus, it's enormously powerful, it's often distressingly long lived. Make a mistake, do something wrong, and the results of your mistake can avalanche far beyond your control. In other words, once committed, sin breeds effects that roll downstream in time. Suddenly, it does that and loses all control by the person who made the mistake. And sometimes that goes on for millennia. Let me give you an example. Abraham's moral lapse with that girl named Hagar. We're still living with the result of that act. The results are far worse today than they were in the second millennium B.C. That act by Abraham may catalyze some of the world's most fearsome end-time events. Because there's nothing worse than a family fight. I know that from experience. I'm an attorney. I have tried cases in which one part of the family was at war with another part. And when the family starts to fight, the gloves come off. It gets ugly. So because of the gospel, a sinner can be forgiven as Abraham was. Later on, what did the Lord say? Talked about Abraham who did only that which was right in my sight. That's the majesty of the gospel. A sinner can be forgiven, but the effects of that sin don't go away just because of forgiveness. Let me give you an example of that. Early in my legal career, I uh, I defended a drunk driver um, in serious trouble. He stayed a little too long at happy hour, got in his car, couldn't quite see the center line of the road, veered across it, head on with an oncoming young father on his way home from work, and the other driver died. Well, the next morning, as my client wakes up and sobers up in detention, is he sorry? Oh, yeah, he is. He's sorrier than he's ever been in his life. Can he be forgiven? Well, if he can't, Calvary doesn't mean anything. So sure, he can be forgiven. But at the moment of his forgiveness, does that bring the victim back to life? No, it doesn't. Still a young mother, got to explain to her kids why daddy isn't coming home, ever. So here's the problem. Heaven has to deal with the effects of sin right up to the end of time. All of which then creates a very logical question. If that's the case, what happens to our sin at the moment of forgiveness? Well the answer is it doesn't evaporate, it goes somewhere. It's transferred to somebody, somebody carries it. And that, my friends, is first Peter two twenty four. Peter was there, he saw it, he saw Jesus die, and in First Peter two he said, who his own self bear our sin in his body, he was carrying it. Our sin was borne by Jesus. I'll say it again. He's the heart and soul of the Advent message. And we better keep him there. Now watch how heaven tried to illustrate that reality to Israel. Somebody sins, they bring a little animal, a little victim to the a courtyard of the sanctuary and there they take its life and the priest either by means of the blood or the meat symbolically carries that sin into the very presence of God and deposits it there think about that priest sprinkling blood on the veil that separates Hagia from Hagia Hagian beyond that curtain is the blazing reality of an eternal and almighty God And the sin is deposited there. In other words, it hasn't just disappeared. It has gone somewhere. Somebody is carrying it. And that, my friend, is Calvary. Jesus bore our sins, and hence even heaven's sanctuary would need cleansing. Now, some critics say, now, why do you Advents believe that? God doesn't sin, so how would sin get up there in heaven? Well, the answer is real easy if you bother to read 1 Peter 2. If you're truly Christ-centered, you recognize He carried it there for us. And the Hebrew Sanctuary Service graphically illustrates this. Once a year, the most solemn time of the Jewish year, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, On that day of days, the high priest goes into that inferno of light for the purpose of symbolically removing what? A year's accumulation of sin transferred there, carried there, and born there by a loving God. He removes sin from the presence of God who has symbolically been carrying it for us. And he takes it out, puts it on the head of an animal representing Lucifer. In other words, the place where it really belongs. Yom Kippur is just an illustration of what heaven would do near the end of time. And just as happens symbolically once a year in Israel, at the end of time, a planet's burden of sad mistakes borne by the Lamb of God would be forever removed from heaven's records and from heaven's presence. And placed where? (laughs) On the head of the one responsible for a cosmic war. Well, some people say, now wait a second. You Advents make Lucifer your savior when you say that. And my response is, oh no, we don't. We don't give our sins to Lucifer. We give our sins to Jesus And what he does with them is his business. He has the absolute right to take forgiven sins and place them on the head of the one who's responsible for rebellion in the first place. So let me say it yet a third time. Jesus is the very center of the Advent message. And shortly before the second Advent, Yom Kippur, so to speak, will occur in heaven. And Daniel the prophet even relayed a message from the heavenly throne that revealed exactly when that would happen, earth time. His massive 2300 year prophecy predicted that at the end of that long, centuries long period, the sanctuary would be cleansed. Well, to validate this prophecy, to make it impossible to ignore, embedded within it were three events that you can historically establish. They've already happened. They were predicted and they happened on time. You start in 457 BC, the year when the 2300-year prophecy began. Measure downstream in time and that prophecy nails three events to the very year. It brings you to A.D. 27, the arrival of Messiah, and that is the year Jesus was baptized and started his ministry. You move down further, three, three and a half years beyond that, you come to A.D. 31. That's the year of Jesus' crucifixion. Then you move on down to A.D. 34. That's also predicted in Daniel's prophecy. And you arrive at the year when the first Christian martyr was put to death. We're talking three for three. This prophecy so far is batting a thousand. You can't ignore it, but there's more. (laughs) Daniel 8.14 says unto 2300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed and serious Bible students for centuries, uh, even including Sir Isaac Newton, a famed British physicist who was also an accomplished Bible student, have long understood that prophecy, when it uses the term day in a prophetic period like this, uses that term to refer to a literal human year. So you begin at 457 B.C., go downstream 2,300 years, and you arrive at A.D. 1844. Heaven's prediction given to the prophet Daniel was that in that year, the sanctuary would begin a process of cleansing, once illustrated by the high priest in Israel. Now, that cleansing process wouldn't be the Hebrew sanctuary— That had been raised to the ground since A.D. 70. This sanctuary was beyond the stars in a place called heaven. So Daniel 8.14 foretells a great final day of atonement, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, not on earth, but in heaven. And in that prophetically predicted year, on the day of atonement, Heaven's great Yom Kippur would begin. Now, think about it. When that happens, the families of heaven and earth are drawing incredibly close together. Just as in the time of Israel, those who do not take the Day of Atonement seriously were and are separated. In the time of Israel, if someone did not take the Day of Atonement process seriously and really search his or her heart, try to make things right. Go through what even pious Jews today call the process of teshuva, of making things right with people that you've wronged during the past year. If that didn't happen, that individual was cut off from Israel. And so near the end of time, those who do not take the Day of Atonement seriously are separated Unrepented and unforgiven sin means cut off from spiritual Israel. And that's the truth that Adventism's pioneers began to understand on the morning of October 23, 1844. Now, I'm well aware that theologians, some of them, sometimes enjoy wondering if Daniel even belongs in Scripture, and if he does whether our pioneers really had it right when they proclaimed a judgment hour message from Daniel 8.14. Well, in Matthew 24.15, Jesus apparently thought Daniel was worth studying. He urged us not only to read but understand what Daniel had predicted in Holy Vision. Jesus Suggested we study the book of Daniel and understand it. And I suggest that he is at least a reasonably good authority source. So the 2300 year prophecy and its end time cleansing of the sanctuary. Unlocks something. It unlocks the whole mystery of how heaven solves the problem of sin. How it terminates the problem. And establishes a safe and stable Universe. See, what happened every year in the Jewish sanctuary service was just a symbol of the plan of salvation and the day when that event would occur with finality at the end of time. When heaven's sanctuary, laden with the confessed sins of God's people, is ultimately, is ultimately cleansed. Why is that important? Because sin cannot go on into eternity. It has to end. Even our confessed and forgiven sins have to end. The idea of an eternal life for sin is Lucifer's dream. It's from that that we get the heresy of an eternal hell. If hell is eternal, then sinners are eternal, and sin is eternal. And that's the Luciferian mistake. So Revelation 14, 6 and 7 proclaims that the judgment has begun. Present tense, it started. We are living in the day of atonement. Which introduces an interesting question. How should we live In the time of Israel, on the Day of Atonement, the entire nation went through a process that helps us understand how serious it is to live in this time when heaven searches every heart. In Hebrew, the word describing the process of self-examination that the Jews in that era of of, uh, Israel went through, the Hebrew word is anach. It means to search your heart To ask yourself in what way might my heart and mind not be aligned with God's ideal. It's a word that urges unsparing self-examination. In which the Holy Spirit aids us in really knowing ourselves. Well, sometimes that process is unpleasant. Let me give you an example personal example. Years ago, I was uh, invited to the Carolinas. I don't remember whether it was North or South Carolina, both beautiful states, to speak at a church, and a lovely family there offered to let me stay in their home while I was there. And this family owned a couple of parrots. Now, parrots are enormously intelligent animals. They're long-lived. They're very smart. They can hear and memorize a human conversation and then repeat it verbatim. Well, one day the phone rang and I got some terrible news. Something had been done that seriously threatened the professional future of a family member. Very serious problem. And all of a sudden from somewhere within me came a response I didn't know I was capable of. I was no longer a, uh, a speaker at a visiting uh, Adventist church, I was back on the quarter deck of a warship as officer of the deck, using language I thought I had left behind for years. Didn't even know that was in me, but under this stimulus, this sudden shock, something came from within me that I wish I hadn't said. I wish I had. I wish the parrots hadn't heard, and I earnestly hope they never repeated. Now, when something like that happens to you, when you make a mistake like that, you've got two options. Number one, you can get very, very discouraged. You can say, look, I, I'm a basket case. I'm no better than the rest of them, the rest of those sailors on the quarter deck. Chances are I'll never make it to heaven. That is a very logical and very human response when you fail a Lord. But there's an alternative you can instead say, Thank you, Lord, for showing me that. I didn't know that was still in there. Didn't know that was still lodged somewhere deep in my mind and heart. But now that I do know, now that it's brought to the conscious level, I can deal with it. You know how? You just say, I'd rather have Jesus than that sin. So we have a judgment hour message, a time when we should allow the Holy Spirit to bring to our attention those things we still need to work on. Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. In the whole Christian world, you won't find that anywhere else. It's absolutely unique to Adventism. And a lot of people, maybe sometimes even Adventists will say, judgment, whoa, wait a second, that's scary. You know what you just done? You just robbed me of my full assurance. Because their view of God is that out there somewhere on this massive throne is this being looking down at you, metaphorically looking at you over his spectacle, so to speak, judgmentally and saying, well... You want in here, do you? Well, you may make it, you may not. I wouldn't be surprised if you don't. Most people don't. But uh, if you don't, there are plenty of people behind you in line. That's their view of God. Well, what's the truth of the judgment? Well, let me ask you a question who's your judge? It's Jesus himself. It's not the Father, it's Jesus. What did Jesus say in John 5:22 for the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto whom? Unto the Son. In other words, you have a brother at the throne. John 3:16 doesn't say God so loved the world that he lent us his son. He gave him to us. He's given up omnipresence. He is forever entombed in human flesh. Totally divine, but still a human brother of ours. We are being judged by a peer. He's been here. He knows what it's like. He knows the feel, that current feel of temptation. He knows what it's like to be lied about and beat up and killed. In other words only he is qualified to judge you, the Father doesn't even try. Judged by your Savior. Well, that ought to be good news enough, but it gets even better. Not only is he your judge, he's something else. And what might that be? Well, John said it well in 1 John, my little children, these things I write unto you that ye sin not. That's the ideal of the gospel. We don't always make it, but the ideal is don't sin. Don't mess with it. All it can do is hurt you and hurt other people. And John goes on to say, but if any man sin, not when, but if, (laughs) if any man sin, we have an advocate. Now, what's an advocate? That's defense counsel at your lawyer. Now, think about this. You're accused of a crime. You go retain competent defense counsel in their office. They tell you, we will do everything possible to to be sure that you walk, that you're acquitted of the charge against you. You go into court the next day and up on the bench, you see not a judge but your own lawyer. Would you suddenly have a feeling of full assurance? Judged by your defense attorney. How can you lose a case like that? Well, there's a way. You can engage in something terminally stupid and fire your lawyer. Most people do. A lot of people do. A fire, the only one that can save them in heavenly judgment. So my response is, bad news? Hardly. Some of the best news in the Bible is the judgment hour message. And the Advent pioneers came to understand that as we sense the end of time and prepare for it, family in heaven is also likewise hard at work. Uh, The heavenly sanctuary is being cleansed of the burden of our past mistakes. In preparation for that day when the king returns and the war is won, and by faith we can look, as the Adventist pioneers did, into the heart of heaven and realize the Lord's not only given us salvation, all of heaven is doing everything in its power to see that we keep it. Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. But there's more. Not only do those two mighty verses move from salvation to sanctuary in a single sentence, separated only by commas, another comma happens, and the verses go on to proclaim an end-time truth called the seventh-day Sabbath. Revelation 14, 6 and 7. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, saying with a loud voice, Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. Say, wait a second, have you heard that language before? Of course you have. Comes right out of the fourth commandment. Worship him that made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is. In other words, Revelation 14 is plagiarized from Exodus 20. So I guess if you're not real keen on the seventh-day Sabbath, you could say, well, you don't have to pay attention to that. That's plagiarism. Well, Revelation 14 predicts the rediscovery of the ancient biblical Sabbath that like a pillar, like a fallen pillar, has been in the weeds of history for centuries, largely forgotten. Now, how did it get there? Well, it got there as a result of a historical catastrophe. In the fourth century, Constantine was desperately trying to hold the empire together. He was facing these wild barbarians out of the northeast. These men were tough. They would ride one horse, lead two or three others. They got hungry. They'd stop, open a vein in their horse's neck, drink till they didn't feel hungry anymore, sew up the vein, mount up, and ride on. That's what Rome was facing. So Constantine is trying to hold together the empire, but he's got a problem. The empire is largely pagan. It had absorbed pagan concepts like the Persian worship of the sun, the dedication of a day to sun worship every week. And so Constantine, a nominal Christian, is facing the issue, how do I harmonize these pagan things with Christianity? And his solution was to accept into Christianity as many pagan traditions as he possibly could. Uh, pagan holidays such as the winter solstice and the spring equinox, images of pagan deities which could be re-characterized as Christian saints, and the Persian dedication of a day each week to the worship of the sun. So on March 7, AD 321, Constantine issues an edict. He says, let all the judges and townspeople and the occupation of all trades rest on the venerable day of the sun. Not the Lord's Day, the venerable day of the sun. Well, Eusebius, an early Christian writer, put it this way. He changes it to the Lord's Day. He says, All things whatsoever it was duty to do on the Sabbath, these we have transferred to the Lord's Day. And in AD 364, the Council of Laodicea passed a rule that Christians must not be idle on the seventh day but must prefer and honor the first day of the week. And so Sabbath keeping uh, changes. The religious duty is transferred from Sabbath to Sunday, and the demand is made to end Sabbath worship. So for centuries, the Sabbath survived only in isolated places. We're talking North Africa, where faithful believers kept, kept the Sabbath alive, the Moors of Scotland, and the Waldensian Alps. But Revelation predicted that the Sabbath truth would be rediscovered about the same time as the sanctuary was rediscovered because it's all in the same sentence in Revelation 14, 6, and 7. And the question we might ask is, why is this so important at the end of time? What's so important about the Sabbath? If you love the Lord, why not Sunday? It's not easy to worship on a day that's different from Neighbors whom we respect and and appreciate. Uh, There are many wonderful people. I'm I'm convinced that the majority of God's end time people today still go to to church on Sunday. Wonderful people there. I know Catholic people who very obviously really love Jesus. So why do we make this distinction? Should we be tempted in the name of... (laughs) christian unity to decide that maybe we should reconsider our sabbatarian beliefs along with our sanctuary message so we can gain acceptance in the wider christian theological community well there may be a reason think it through something else was happening in 1844 beside the discovery of the sanctuary doctrine and the sabbath A man named Charles Darwin was penning his first draft of a book that we become on the origin of species. Karl Marx was penning his first draft of something that would enter history as the Communist Manifesto. Now, without a weekly reminder of creation and Eden and the day God himself set up to remind us every week, of intelligent design, people could become sitting ducks for the theory that we're just here by accident. (coughs) So the Sabbath (coughs) is part of a message delivered by God's end-timed people. But there's more still. Now we move on to Revelation 14, 8-11, which describes an end-time global mistake. Revelation speaks not only to spiritual matters, but geopolitical issues as well, because at the end of time, the two will merge. Religion and politics will coalesce into this worldwide danger Revelation 14 devotes more than half of its seven end-time verses because the combination of religion and politics is explosive. Of the seven verses leading from Revelation 14.6 to Revelation 12, four of them, more than half, warn of a world in chaos in which globalism seeks to dictate matters of faith. And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen. And for that world, heaven has the most serious warnings. Interestingly enough, to describe an end-time crisis, heaven's messenger uses a prehistoric city by the name of Babylon, perhaps the earliest city in recorded sacred history. There, a massive tower called down heaven's rebuke. There, a pagan king was given a view of oncoming human events clear to the end of time, and Daniel had to explain it to him. There, that same king foolishly rebelled against prophecy and paid a heavy price. But why use Babylon to illustrate a mistake of an end-time world gone mad? And my suggestion is because Babylon illustrates the very mistakes people will make as they near the portal of eternity. Three of them I can see clearly. Number one, the people of Babylon chose to disbelieve the promises of God. God's promise was, I'll never again send a worldwide flood. Which, by the way, is still evident. The evidence of the flood is still uh, available worldwide in the layers of strata, the strata layers of sediment, we are told by very, very uh, competent uh, geologists that those layers appear in the same order everywhere you go on Earth. They may be at different elevations, but they're in the same order. So, there was a worldwide flood. People of Babylon said, Well, God's promised uh, there won't be another one. Maybe He will, maybe He won't. We don't know. Who knows? So they disbelieved the word of God. That was mistake number one. That led directly to mistake number two. Having lost faith in God, they had to believe in something. But what? Well, the answer is obvious. Self. We will save ourselves. We'll build something. We'll build a tower. And by the way, while we're at it, let's build it all the way to heaven. In other words, salvation by works, which is the central theme of every false religion. Point number three, mistake number three. Centuries go by. A military genius named Nebuchadnezzar is on the throne. He's rebuilt Babylon to awesome proportions. He has the equally awesome privilege of a communication from the cosmic throne which reveals to him human history all the way down through the end of time. He saw the entire future right down to the point where the coming of Jesus stopped everything in human history. Unfortunately, pride and ambition robbed him of the blessing he might have gotten, and he gets to thinking about this. Wait a second, my kingdom's going to be replaced by successive inferior kingdoms? My kingdom replaced repeatedly? Never. And to illustrate his rebellion against the prophetic future, he built an enormous 90-foot gold statue and summoned the world to something that would not only be a celebration, but a worship service. The rules were simple. You come here, you celebrate, and you worship. You can either worship or you can die. In other words, a world religion enforced by fire in a nearby smelting furnace. Well, put it all together. An end time world in which the promises of God are no longer believed. Salvation is not by faith in the clear truths of the Bible, but it seems to be grounded for this generation of people in human logic, Reintroducing Nebuchadnezzar's old dream of an enforced world religion. In other words, globalism garbed as a religious movement. Now let's go to the Bible and put those pieces together. Revelation describes this end time problem as a beast seven heads, ten horns the word blasphemy written all over it, so it's obviously on the wrong side of the cosmic war. A dangerously powerful force opposed to heaven's plan. Now, you're serious Bible students. You've read about this in Revelation 13. That's the same chapter that describes an end-time nation arising in a relatively unpopulated part of the earth which by the way, for millennia had been tended and kept in good order by some remarkable people. In, in the States, we refer to them as Native Americans. I frankly uh, prefer the terminology used by our Canadian friends, North of 49, they refer to these people as First Nations. I think it's a more respectful way to refer to them. Remarkable people who had kept this continent in pretty good shape. I have great regard for for those people. Well, the same chapter that describes an end-time nation arising in that part of the earth, kept so well by those people, quickly rises to global power, and then something happens. Things go wrong. And now let's go to Revelation 17. Take a look at verse 12. Now you're going to see globalism. The Lord speaks to John the Revelator and he says, The, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings which, has, which receive power as kings one hour with the beast. With that ugly thing with blasphemy written all over it. By the way, the uh, Greek word there for hour is aura. It just means a very short, indeterminate period of time. For those who may be inclined to worry about the time of trouble, that Greek word suggests the time of trouble doesn't last long. So he says, the ten horns you saw are ten kings, which received power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind. There's your globalism. They're all thinking the same thing. Goes on to say, these shall make war with the Lamb. In other words, a globalized world is at war with heaven. How do we know this refers to a globalized world? Well, look at the symbol that the prophet uses, the ten horns. Ten is a scriptural symbol of everything, everywhere, an entire world. Let me give you three quick examples of that. Uh, God speaks morality not just to the Hebrew people but to the entire globe and how many commandments does he give? Ten. Jesus predicts an end time world church waiting for the advent. He, pred- he uses a symbol of young women and what does he say? Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten. Ten young women. World church. Ten. Everything everywhere. Nebuchadnezzar has that view of everything down to the end of time when that mysterious force comes out of the cosmos and stops human history. And it hits a statue right on the feet. And how many toes are on those feet? Ten of them. Every nation on earth. At the coming of Christ, all ten nations, the entire globe, have one mind. An entire planet globalizes and the uniting force is a false religion because this beast has blasphemy written all over it. Well, now, wait a second. Is all of that possible? Is it possible that religion could become an end-time problem with a world majority that thinks we're here by accident because something went bang? And my response is emphatically, yes, it's possible. It's not only possible, but certain, because at the end of time, supernatural things will occur that will be visible, undeniable, and appealing to your sensory input. Now think about it. Those who believe only in what their human senses convey are very much at risk of believing a lie when their senses perceive apparent, undeniable reality. I submit that atheists are uniquely susceptible to the unexplained but apparently very real phenomena that will occur at the end of time. Will it happen? What did Jesus warn? He says there will be false Christs false second comings and he warns don't even go out and look at them because the risk of delusion is just too great you have to deny apparent reality in Matthew 24 he warned the deception will be so great that if possible even the very elect would be deceived same thing could happen Similarly, to world religions that believe in the supernatural, they're equally at risk with the atheist because when confronted with an apparently supernatural illusion, they're going to believe it. When this happens, you will have no defense unless you have been where? (laughs) In the Word. The four verses of Revelation 14 that warn of end-time globalism are worth some serious study. We might just want to know why we believe in creation and creation's Memorial Day. We might want to know why Daniel's massive 2300-year prophecy fixes a moment when we need to get really serious about how we live. We might want to to really know the truths we are commissioned to proclaim. Well, now we move on to the capstone of Revelation 14. Verse 12. That verse describes people who will face a sky filled with energy. Think about it. One angel overflying that huge army of Assyrians, 186,000 people. One angel overflew, and the next morning they're all gone. They're dead. That's the power in that army out there of angels in the cosmos. Now, heaven empties. It's completely empty. There's silence in heaven for half an hour. That's the prophetic length of time it takes to come here, rescue God's people, and get back home. whole army of the cosmos is there. There is that sizzling, dazzling inferno of energy. Most people are so terrified of it, they pray to rocks. They'd rather be buried in an avalanche than to have to face that divine energy. But there will be people who will look into that inferno of light and see not a threat, but a friend. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God. (laughs) Not just 90% of them. All 10. And they live to see the face of God. You know, in college and graduate school, 90% can be either an A-minus, possibly a B-plus. In heaven's sight, 90% is a failure. And at the end of time, prophecy foretells a generation who do not fail. They keep the commandments. Well, one might ask, how on earth did they do that? All of human history is filled with sad tales of failure. I mean, even among the Bible's heroes. David, for example, stained by adultery and murder. Samson is stained by youthful mistakes that cost him his eyes and his life. Elijah ran from an angry woman when he should have stayed and finished a great reformation instead of running. Even Moses who failed briefly at the portals of the promised land. How how does this end time generation do what few have ever done? Well, as Paul Harvey used to say, let's get the rest of the story. Read on Read the rest of the verse. They exhibit the faith of Jesus. Now what, pray tell, is that? Well, on the cross, a time came when the Father just could no longer be there with him. He was carrying a planet's sin. He's now alone. Heaven has to draw back from sin, being born in that quantity. And despite the awful raging pain in his arms, Jesus draws a breath and screams into the record of history his admission, he can no longer see the Father. My God, where have you gone? Oh, look what happens next. Having admitted he couldn't see the Father anymore, what's the very next thing he does? He prays to the Father he can no longer see. And Ellen White puts it beautifully. She says he turned loose of life, dropped into the unknown, trusting that out there in the blackness were the Father's arms. Well, in their own small way, Earth's last generation of believers do something similar. With nothing left for them on this frightened and fractured planet, they turn loose of this world And drop by faith into the Father's arms. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments and the faith of Jesus. So Revelation 14 presents us with 12 powerful verses. With messages for an end time world. We reach verse 12, and now we see history accelerate. The very next verse describes how some are laid to rest just before earth's last madness. The New King James Version puts it nicely. It said, Blessed are they that die in the Lord from now on. There's a time period beyond which some people just don't need to face the ordeal of a world gone mad. Some of God's saints are allowed to rest before the world descends into its final madness. My wife is one of those. Just last March, Joellen was still alive. She passed away before American cities collapsed into fiery chaos and precious black kids in those cities were lost to gunfire. She was a physician. Her heart was in the mission field of the South Pacific. She had a special love for the people of the Solomon Islands and New Guinea. and She often traveled with her father, Dr. Marion Barnard, on mission trips. And they'd go out. Uh, ...to mission hospitals and do surgeries that were otherwise just not available there... ...with the skills of, you know, present in in the mission hospital environment. And uh, I have in my hand here an arrow tip. This was made by natives in the Solomon Islands. It was on the end of an arrow fired in anger by a warring neighbor tribe. It entered the skull of a victim pierced, went all the way through, crossed the midline, went to the opposite side of the brain. And so Joellen and her dad took that patient to surgery, removed this arrow. Her dad put his finger in the entry hole when the cerebrospinal fluid was wanting to gush out because of the change of pressure. They got that stabilized. They pulled this arrow out. The natives allowed them to keep this And the next morning, they went doing post-surgical rounds to to the patient's bed, and it was empty. Well, that's the doctor's nightmare, isn't it? The surgeon's nightmare. The patient may have expired during the night. But he hadn't. They found him, guess where? Out on the lawn in the sunshine, sitting on the grass in a circle with his family eating breakfast. A year or two went by and they uh, went back to that location and the man was somewhat crippled. There had been some real damage to his brain, but he could still walk with the aid of a crutch or a, a, a cane. He walked for several miles through the jungle to come and thank them for giving life back to him. Revelation 14.13 describes a short period of rest for some. But notice something. They aren't resting long. The very next verse, Revelation 14.14, shows world events colliding with a cosmic arrival and the whole sky is on fire with energy. Heaven's empty. The Bible says there was silence in heaven for half an hour prophetic time. The entire army of the cosmos has left heaven and come to put a ring of blazing energy and light around a little blue-white world. And in the midst of that angelic force, enthroned and crowned, is His Majesty. That is Revelation 14. That is the three angels' messages at their summit. That is the destiny of some generation of believers. So let's close with a question. If not us, then whom? And if not us, why? It is a goodly land, and we are well able to go up and possess it. Thank you. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org.